Welcome to the First United Methodist Church. We hope our sermon broadcast will bless you. Scripture reading is from Luke, the 15th chapter, verses 11 through 31 from the New Revised Standard Version. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of wealth that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a distant region. And there he squandered his wealth in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the region, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that region, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran and put his arm around him and kissed him. Then the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the slaves and asked him, What's going on? And he replied, Well, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry, and he refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, and yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, and you kill the fatted calf for him, The father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, if you were paying attention the last few weeks, you might have wondered why we skipped over Luke 15, 1 through 3, and 11b through 32. And that's probably because, well, 
A, I, I wanted to extend the series an extra week, but more importantly, I think it's at the very heart of all the parables we've heard in these last weeks. Catherine of Siena, who lived from 1347 to 1380, spoke words that I think are extremely relevant to those who would be devoted followers of Jesus some seven centuries later. Their words, I think, echo the lesson we hear today in the gospel reading. And what she said was this, the only thing we can offer to God of value is to give our love to people as unworthy of it, as unworthy as we are of God's love. And so I'll repeat it with a paraphrase because I always trip over the sentence she wrote. The only thing of value we have to offer God is to love people as unworthy of God's love as we are. I want to preface a little bit what I want to say to you today by sharing with you, uh, by remembering the words of the Apostle Paul, words I think Christians must constantly hold in mind lest we begin to, in Paul's words, think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And this is what he said, found in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So let's keep that in mind this morning at least, but maybe even longer. Not one of us is sinless. Our sins may be as varied as the colors of creation, but we are all sinners, In Christian understanding, the only person who ever lived a sinless life was Jesus. And while you and I may be Christians, none of us are even close to being like Jesus. Amen? Who was without sin. We're all sinners. That's the plain and simple, unvarnished truth. I don't say that to make us feel bad about ourselves. I don't say it to invoke guilt or shame or self-loathing or to bring you to your knees in tears of repentance. It's just the truth. And when we're honest, we know it's the truth. I know it's the truth about me. Somehow, somewhere, sometime, we all fall short of the glory of God and need God's forgiveness. But the flip side of the coin is that despite our sins, whatever they may be, we are still very much loved and forgiven by the one whom we have sinned against. We are sinners, yes. But nevertheless, we are all still loved and cherished by a God of grace we can't really begin to understand. That's the beauty of the story of the prodigal son. Whether we are, we are prodigal sons or prodigal daughters, Jesus tells us God still loves us. And we should note, it isn't even dependent on our repentance. I know you've all heard plenty of sermons on this passage. It's probably one of the most famous of Jesus' teachings, this and the Good Samaritan But it's always worth taking another look and remembering. What I'd point out first of all is this. The father never stopped loving his son. He didn't sit on the porch waiting for his son to crawl back. He didn't wait for his son to repent of all he'd done. He didn't wait until his son had apologized. No, he ran to him the minute he saw him. And he never even let his son complete his well-rehearsed speech. He ran to him, threw his arms around him, put a robe on his shoulders, a ring on his fingers, new Birkenstocks on his feet, and threw a party for him. 
Not because he repented, not because he groveled and begged. Remember, he was going to be happy to be a servant in his father's house. But the father, the prodigal father, as some have called him, wouldn't have any of that. He sees him in the distance, walking back home, and that's all he needs to know. So he runs. I mean, can you see that? Some of our older members, maybe? Can you see this old man nearly making a fool of himself with dust flying and a robe trailing and sweat pouring down his face, running, nearly falling over himself to meet his prodigal son? Boy, would that make a good movie clip. But that, Jesus says, is an image of God. God rejoicing over the lost one who has found, the dead one who has come alive. And what a joy it is to know we are sons and daughters too. The question is, which son or which daughter? Because there's another child in this household that is in perhaps some ways more important as a part of the story. Because remember, Jesus tells us this in response to the criticism that he's been sharing table with the wrong crowd. He's been eating with prostitutes and hanging out with tax collectors and all kinds of sordid people, adulterers, fallen folk. And there are those in the community who are all in a huff about it. They're growling and grumbling in self-righteousness. Who does he think he is? Where does he get off saying such things? And so Jesus tells us not only this story, but according to Luke, a total of three stories about a lost sheep. And finally, one about a lost child. And there was the one about the lost coin. And he does so not with the prodigal child and not with the prodigal father who welcomes that child back. No, the heart of the story, especially when we remember that it's told in response to the criticism of those Jesus spent time with, is the elder brother. Funny, isn't it? How when we're the ones in trouble, we so easily and readily see ourselves in the role of the prodigal, in need of mercy and grace, so anxious to receive God's forgiveness, but when it's someone else, oh, well, suddenly things are different. And we get resistant to grace in other people's lives, not unlike this elder brother. Suddenly we ought to just, now hold on a minute. Dad, we can't be forgiving people willy-nilly. I mean, what they did, what he did, the younger brother. I've been living with this story all week, as I tend to do now and then. Then it's interesting how over the years I've been reading and seeing the news through the lens of this parable. One time when this parable was the reading for a coming Sunday, I had stumbled on a story about a church out west that was struggling with a particularly difficult issue. A pedophile who had served his time in prison had come to faith and was then released on parole was seeking the ministry of a church. Unlike some might have done, he didn't try to hide his past. He went straight to the pastor, confessed what he had done, and asked for permission to attend worship. 
In an interview, the pastor talked about the very real struggles the congregation was having with how to respond, complicated by the fact that the church had a weekday preschool. The pastor wisely, maybe, had not made a unilateral decision and in speaking to the interviewer didn't really reveal how he felt about the matter it was clear he was inviting his entire congregation to struggle with the issue, challenging them to think about the kind of grace, forgiveness, and love the gospel proclaims. Another church about the same time, a Lutheran church in Reno, Nevada, went through the similar struggle at about the same time and ultimately decided to allow a man to attend worship, but only under a 17-part covenant. He could only attend the 7.30 a.m. worship service. He couldn't use the restrooms. He'd be met by a pair of men in the parking lot who would accompany him into worship. And he'd have to meet meekly with, weekly with an accountability group to ensure he was following all the court orders and church expectations for his ongoing treatment and counseling and presence in the church. Some felt it was a reasonable compromise, recognizing that, yes, even this man is a child of God who needs the ministry of the church. If the church can't minister to such as these, some would say, then the church has failed. However, not surprisingly, especially those with young children saw it as a deeply, deeply troubling development, and many left the congregation. I wonder how we might respond. How Jesus might counsel us in our time of prayer. Here is one who sins so grievously it repulses us at the core of our being. And yet we remember, don't we, we, that we're all sinners in need of grace. How do we extend grace to ones such as him? I have a sneaking suspicion that were Jesus to walk our cities today, along with hanging out with prostitutes and drug addicts, he'd be hanging out with those who are guilty of graver things. And he'd be roundly condemned for it. So what is a church to do? What are the limits to grace, to acceptance, to compassion? Is the church a shelter for all? Or are there some whose sins are so grave that even when honest and repentant about their crimes, we would not welcome them? I confess I find myself torn, standing right there next to the elder brother, frustrated, confused, maybe even a little bit lost. And then the words of Catherine come back. The only thing of value we have to offer God is to love people as unworthy of God's love as we are because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not some have sinned. Not some have sinned more than others, but all have sinned. Not some have been really bad sinners and some less so and some just a little, but all have sinned, period. And then there's Jesus with this unyielding grace that we just don't completely understand. And so the more I live with this parable, each time the gospel brings it along, 
I'm more and more convinced that as some scholars point out, it's not ultimately the prodigal son and not even the elder brother, but the father who is the prodigal. Or maybe, as the sermon title says, it's about a trinity of prodigals. What do we do with a God who forgives with such reckless abandon, who welcomes home the least, the last, the lost, the worst? What do we think of a God who gives shelter or sanctuary to any and all? I have to say, it had never occurred to me before that week what I might do or say as the pastor of a church where someone guilty of a grievous crime wanted to attend worship because they'd found God in prison. What if a convicted murderer wanted to attend or a convicted drug dealer? What if a convicted murderer wanted to join the church or a former drug dealer or a prostitute or, yes, even a pedophile on parole? You know, there are days that I really wish Jesus would have been a little less gracious and loving. It would make life and faith so much easier, but then easy wasn't what we were promised. Because in that case, perhaps none of us would find shelter in the house of God. Because we are all sinners, and yet we're all still welcome in the home of the prodigal God who never stops loving us no matter what and who longs to run to us as we make our way home. And though we might long for a perfect world where we can truly welcome and embrace all who seek the shelter of sanctuary, we don't yet live in that world. So I think the church in Reno had it right. The church should minister to everyone but it also has an obligation to protect every one. In one of his parables, titled The Friendly Forest, Rabbi Friedman gives a talk about a commu- or talks about a community of animals living together in a forest. And one day a tiger comes to the forest and asks if he can live among them all seem to be in agreement that it would be okay, except for the lamb, who was very nervous. The story moves through a series of attempts to calm and assure the lamb that the tiger means it no harm, but the fable finally ends with one of the more uncouth and straight-speaking members of the friendly forest, the owl, saying... I have never heard anything so ridiculous. If you want a lamb and a tiger to live together in the same forest, you don't make them try to communicate. You cage the bloody tiger. That's not to say the tiger can't be a part of the community, but the boundaries need to be maintained to ensure that all members of the community feel safe. That's in essence what the church in Reno tried to do, tried to, do to balance the needs of the community with the needs of one who needed the ministry of that community. And though it may seem exclusive, even judgmental, to say to some, we can only welcome you on these terms until this imperfect world is fully transformed and the kingdom of God comes in fullness, it appears to be the only reasonable option to such dilemmas. 
when the kingdom of God does come in its fullness and the lamb and the lion indeed lie down together, all brokenness will be healed. Everything will be made new and we will live in peace with one another, reconciled to God and to all. But until that day when perfection comes, we must in profound humility own our own brokenness and struggle together to find ways to love both the tiger and the lamb. And if we must finally build walls, then the call of God is to build them not with the brickwork of judgment and condemnation, but with the brickwork of love and the mortar of understanding, which in the end may be the only things of God we can offer that are true and lasting. There was a man who had two sons, and all three of them were prodigals in their own way, getting in trouble for trampling on historic expectations of the religious community, which may well mean that we all, every one of us, are also prodigals too. Prodigal children loved by a prodigal God who is always on the lookout for one more lost soul trying to find his or her way home. Thanks be to God.